0: Thank you, and enjoy today's message.
1: Okay, then. All right, appreciate you being here, and those who'll be joining us on uh, online. Um, I want to talk a bit about process tonight, uh, various elements of that, because in any in any um, in any reconstruction, there has to be within that process that if you engage with the process, will help you in the reconstruction. And um, we've done a lot of deconstruction, we've challenged a lot of ideas, and um, uh, occasionally now we're wanting to kind of see where do we go from here, how, how do we put together what is the due process of, um, of of rebuilding, in essence, what is our faith, which I think is is what a lot of us have been doing and are doing, and a challenge to do um, in a very positive way. So with the Lord's help uh, we'll we'll hopefully share some important things tonight. so there there are two words I want to introduce to you first. Um, one is the word recalibrate. I'll explain these in a minute. One's recalibrate. And the other word is um, re. Let me get the right. Recalculate. Recalculate. Now, I think these are important in the sense that. Uh, well, well, we'll. I'll break them down for you in a minute. But I thought first of all, I want to just um, pull a couple of verses of scripture to try and. Um, interconnect what i think is going on in these two verses um, I said to you before sadly we we have those of us who read the bible or bothered to read the bible or maybe even still read the bible have have read it through lenses that were provided for us and because of because of the way the value system was set then invariably human nature is that we read through that lens and so So things, rather than things interpreting themselves as an entity in its own right, they interpret themselves with an overlay of what you bring into the conversation with you. And um, uh, one of my great beefs with, with, you know, um, William Paul Young talked about his people. One of my great beefs with my people is that we were, never, we were never trained how to have a conversation, only how to defend um, a doctrine. And uh, that, that has been very troublesome. I think, it, I think it's greatly damaged um, big parts of my life because I'm no longer in that place, but for great parts of my life, I, I did not know how to have a conversation even truly about faith or about the world or about creation or about God or about the divine are about the universe without immediately feeling that I, I had to impose upon the conversation these certainties that I had been delivered, which I had embraced and accepted, um, and that then my whole point was not engaging in a conversation. It was defending. It was defending uh, what I thought was a truth. It was about defending a position and um, of course you you don't grow that way you just become more and more dogmatic and more and more rigid because you never have any space for for the entrance of some new voices and some new thoughts into the conversation and and sadly i think um, most most of i'll speak for the christian world because that's where i was raised most of the christian world is in that place where there is not an openness to evaluate and re-examine and re-look and, and have the humility to say, um, you know, what if we got this wrong? Um, what if there are things we can learn? So, so the, these two verses, as I, read, as I read Scripture now, and I don't read as much as I used to do, partly because I don't feel um, any sense of guilt that I have to do that in order to qualify my own spirituality, um, so I, I I read, but I don't read from the sense of you better read this or you're in trouble with the big man upstairs. Um, but when I read now, I find that I I see through a, a slightly different lens, which does two things for me. First of all, it opens me up to consider some new truth from what is existing material because now you've freed yourself a little bit from the shackles that said it can it it does mean this and can only mean this. Uh, But it also is making me much more compassionate to those who dared to communicate stuff that got written down in the thing that we call Bible and Scripture, which um, uh, I'm sure for most of them, if they'd have known what was going to happen to what they were saying that somebody was going to write down, we would have had no Bible because they would have said no chance. Uh, I'll talk off the record, but you ain't recording this. You're not writing this down because I don't want all these people for 2,000 years picking over this like chicken bones and then imposing upon it their own thoughts when it was a thing said in a, in a conversation, written in a context, given meaningful in the environment that it was given. And uh, and that's why what, what I've tried to, to, to get over to you is something I think is very important that I was taught to read the Bible literally. Um, and um, I... I I had to close my ears To anything that said If this is literal This is a problem Because to me You know I was raised with the thing Well if if any part of it's not true All of it's not true If any part of it's not God All of it's not God Which is stupid I mean that is just Stupidity of the highest order and it's manipulative and it's controlling and it's judgmental and it's condemning because it, it says you cannot read the Bible outside of what we say it means and if your literal is not our literal, then you're wrong. So we've, we've grown up with these, these kind of problems. So, so my advice is don't read the Bible literally, although I do believe that, that great parts of the Bible are literal, but read it literally right, not literally, that everything that's written is, is true in the way that you think it's true. For example, you know, we've said, you know, if God is love, did God really say to this tribal group, desperate for land and prominence and security, go and wipe out all the men, women, and children in that village, kill them, kill their animals, and then let everybody know that God did it. You know, I mean, that doesn't makes sense if God is love it it, it, it makes God an ogre so but literally if you read it literally it says here's a group of people in a tribal world who are small and insignificant where the only way to get some prominence and some security in the neighborhood was first of all your God had to be more powerful than their God what was the best way to make your God more powerful than their God? Well, our God told us, go there, and we killed 3,000 people with a ball of string. You know, and basically that's the kind of thing that you see. Now, some of those things, extraordinary feats that are written there, you know, I was raised with people like Shamgar, names you won't even be familiar with, and Dorcas and, and, and Samson. Some of those stories may be accurate. Um, some of them may have been exaggerated through legend. I actually don't have a problem with that. that. That really does not diminish the power of what Scripture was meant to be at all for me because that's what you do, isn't it? You know, I, I, lived, I in, in, in the age that I've lived, um, I can remember being in meetings where people said what happened in the meeting and I was there, you know. <laughs> And, and suddenly there were there were five hundred more people there than actually were in the building, and there were there were three hundred healings, and you know, and 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 a thousand people came to Jesus, and there were only four hundred people there, you know. And it, I'm not saying that anybody does that deliberately with the wickedness, but the human heart for prominence and significance does things. Now, these people who wrote the Bible are human, and they were expressing stories. In the Old Testament, it was predominantly verbally, and then you get all of that, and you think, "Well, hundred doesn't look too impressive. Thousand looks much better." So it's just one knot, um, and we might think, "Oh, that's terrible," but it actually happens all the time, and uh, and so, yeah. So what I'm saying is that that to me is not does not diminish my appreciation of the Bible or Scripture. Um, As sacred writing and important stuff Because within all that nonsense that we talk You know, for me, within all the nonsense that I talk There's some beautiful truth And there's there's some genuine encounters with the divine That you could learn from Amongst all the nonsense That might come out of my mouth Or be shown in my life If you were to catalogue my life You'll find a bunch of nonsense But in there, there's all this wonderful stuff so, so I see scripture, if you read it literally, that means you're treating it like literature that has within it truth. That sometimes the point is not for you to literally decide this happened, but sometimes the point is within the poetry and the story of this, there is something actually much deeper than the thing that we even thought was important in the first place. Because if it's anything, it's a book that's trying to catalogue some sense of spiritual journey of the, of the never-ending, enduring question from the beginning of time. Is there a God? Who is God? What is God like? How does God work? How do we fit into that equation? And this is these people's contribution uh, to that amazing debate. So I said that because I want to just look at two verses of Scripture in a context um, that hopefully will lead us to talk about recalibrating and recalculating. And it's in Romans 12, and um, the first two verses that Paul writes to the, to the Romans, I'm going to read it from the New King James um, version, just because I am, so there. Um so use a, use a couple of old English words. I beseech you that 's a good old english literally word it's really funny you know that that, that people will complain about the Bible, language of the Bible, and I think rightly so in many ways because it you know using old english you know i was I was raised to pray in old English, so you couldn't even talk to God in regular English. you know um, you had to talk to God as thou and thee and wouldst and Because, like, obviously God could not understand modern English because he only came on the scene in in, um, in 1611 when King James wrote his Bible. And, uh, you know, because, but here's the crazy thinking. Because people believe God inspired King James to write the King James Version, then you must have to talk to God in the language that King James used in the King James Bible because not to do that was not to respect. The, the sacredness of scripture that was given in King James English. Stupid, really stupid, stupid, stupid. So, so you know, words like beseech and all that stuff, just, you know, it's all right, just grab a hold of it. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, of course, interpreting that um, through my old lens was the whole thing that, you know, God wants absolutely everything of me, my time, my family, you know, my energy, my effort, every day of my life, my money. And there may be some truth to that, but but I would put it to you that if the relationship is one of love, then um, what God is looking for is never within the the bounds of what we would see as legal demands. You have to be this, 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 and this, and I want that, 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 and that. Otherwise, I don't want anything to do with you. That actually just bears no reality with what is the, the underlying story of Scripture and God with humanity. So, so, all I want to say on that is this, that that word reasonable is the Greek word logikos, which, what word do we get from logikos? Logical. Which I find interesting because um, other Bibles put it as your act of worship, your sacrifice. When actually, what Paul's really saying is here, look, if you've really encountered the mercies of God, the logical outcome would be (laughs) that you'd put some effort into this. Now he's using terminologies that once we look at them through our lenses, we think, ooh... Bodies, living sacrifice, holy, because we've distorted the word holy. We've distorted what is acceptable to God. We've distorted sacrifice. So now you and I are thinking, oh, whew, you know this. When actually, what Paul's really saying is the logical conclusion to an encounter with the mercies of God is to put some effort and some investment into that. Uh, and I think in the wider part of us as a church is Q. Some people need to learn that. That the logical conclusion of the mercies and the freedoms that we've found in God is to put a little bit of effort to put a little bit of something back in that is sacrificial you know that is that has a kind of wholeness to it and and that that um, that that you would think, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking to do things which are acceptable to Chris because what I have experienced from her thinks, well, it's logical for me to try and do some things that are acceptable to Chris. So when he talks about acceptable to God, it's no big thing. It's just saying the logical thing to do is kind of just give something back, to the divine, to God himself, and then also let that overspill. So, 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 you see, my new view takes all the condemnation and that. I would have read this like, oh, you know, so we're going to have a week of fasting and praying because, you know, we've got to be sacrificed and holy and acceptable to God. Like it was some kind of punishment. You know, because I've been merciful, this is the punishment you must bear. I don't think it's that. I think it's a grace that said, well, the logical response is, okay, so that's how I'm trying to live my life. The logical response is... Um, so, we go into verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. One version says the pattern of this world. Now, it's interesting because the word world there is the often used word in the New Testament Greek, which is aeon, which is actually more to do with age. It's to do with what the age has constructed around us. And of course, we all live in a different age. And each age that we live in can can impose upon us things, and things that you might not think have got anything to do with anything. But but what about if this age imposes such a selfish, self-centered view, world view that all we are interested in is our own gain and our own name and our own fame, that would be don't conform to the pattern of this world. You know, all I could think was don't conform to the pattern of this world, sin. Everything was sin. The answer was sin. What does that mean? Sin and God. Sin and God. Everything was sin-based, you know. Failure, depraved, don't conform to the pattern of this world. All it's really saying is you guys need to be awake... Because part of the pattern of this world is its religious structures as well. The way that it's packaged our attempts to view the divine and humanity and the cosmos... So all of these things come into this equation. It's not just a, oh, the world is very sinful and wicked and you don't want to be conformed. It's like your your mind, your spirit, the the inner you has to be awakened so so that the age that you're living in doesn't make you conform to something that prevents you experiencing the connection you should have with the divine and therefore the release that you should have because of that. So that makes sense. So don't conform, it means to conform oneself to another pattern. Don't conform yourself to the pattern of the age, the aeon. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay. Now let's look at a couple of words in there. Be transformed is the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get what word? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And what is the one example of metamorphosis that comes into your mind when I ask you to give me an example? It's the caterpillar that goes into the cocoon that emerges as the butterfly. It's the transformation from, from, from the grub to the insect. It's the wonderful picture of the thing wraps itself in a cocoon of death, in a shroud. I'm done with being a caterpillar. My, my time as a bug is finished. I will no longer conform to the pattern of the bug world, right? I am going to be transformed, but in order to do that, I have to have a renewed mind, because at this moment, I don't know how to fly, I don't know how to flap wings because I don't have any wings to flap. But wouldn't it be nice to have wings and be able to fly instead of being a grub, grubbing around. We even use that term, grubbing around on some piece of bark somewhere. And so what it has to do is it has to not be conformed to the pattern of grub aeon, ages, world, surrounding. And then because of that, there has to be a... There has to be a leaving of that. There has to be a death. There has to be a deconstruction, so there can be a reconstruction. And lo and behold, in its tomb, uh, that little sucker begins to grow those little spiky things. You know, it's hey up, much more sensitive to my world now. And that's what those little deals are. It's it's it, they are antennas. They are sensors to the, it senses the world in a completely different way to the one it ever did and suddenly pop the wings. It comes out and dries and it has wings and now it can fly. Why? Because it has been transformed, but the transformation had to come from a renewing of the mind. Now, I can't prove that because, you know, getting a grub and a butterfly on a psychiatrist's bed um, or in a a psychologist's office is quite difficult. You know, tell me, Bug, what happened? Uh, We're not able to do that, unfortunately. Um, but you get the image, you get the picture, there is a transformation And now, now it's not thinking crawl around in the dirt Now it's thinking fly in the heavens Can you see there's a transformation? Its whole approach to life and its whole experience of life Has now been utterly transformed So, so I, I believe that in, 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 in God's process for us He has a desire that we have these experiences that are transformative. So he's saying go from conform to transform. Now, here's what I believe happens. I believe that that institutional religion conforms us. But I believe that the Jesus kind of experience of the Father transforms us. Okay? Um, Now, of course, there's a lot more safety in conform because if you are a conformist, the last thing you want to do is go into a cocoon because it's like, well, if we go into that cocoon, who we are and what we are is finished. And we've kind of got this down. We do grubness. We do our grubness really well. We grub around good. We've got this baby down. We know what we're on with. We know how to hide. We know how to eat. We know what to do. Don't want to... Go through the mystery of that cocoon thing. I can't honestly think that the little grub is thinking, Oh, it's no big deal because you know, I'm coming out the other side. I think it's like a death, it's like the tomb, it's like Jesus' tomb. It's like, I know I'm going, if I go in there, I don't know what's on the other side. But somehow this thing commits itself to go in there. It commits itself to stop conforming to the pattern of being a grub so that it can be transformed into something new. And it says here to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, again, because I was so terrified of God for so long but didn't think I was terrified of God, but I was because the pressure I now was under to perform showed that I really was. Um, I don't see good, acceptable and perfect as being anything scary anymore. I just see that as, as the transformed being discovering that what they has become is perfect to God and therefore they can embrace themselves in that perfection that is at one with God, the one who has released them and transformed them. So you've got the metamorpho bit. Um, so it says be transformed... Metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. Now, that word renewing, again, just a very cursory overview of the Greek in that word. Actually, it's is nearer to our word of, 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 we would understand it in renovation. So, so, renovation means that you change something for the better. So, if you're renovating a property, you are changing it for the better. Okay? If you're renovating um, a vintage car, you are changing it for the better. So when you renovate something, uh, that whole thing of renewing, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you're renovating it to make a complete change for the better. So what he's saying is transformation has to go in hand with renovation. If you want that kind of metamorphosis that kind of transformation it comes by the renewing of your mind the renovation of your thinking a complete change for the better and that's when you begin to expose what is the good um the acceptable what he calls the perfect will of god so that's where it brings me to this word um here recalibrate um What does it mean to recalibrate? Well, in in my context, in in the building industry, when I had a real job, um, we had to recalibrate instruments um, because those instruments over time would cease to have the accuracy that they once had so that the measurements that you made would no longer be accurate measurements so if you just left the thing as it was without recalibrating it, the problem is that it would lose its accuracy. So we had to recalibrate theodolites etc. etc. You recalibrated them so that they would be able to read accurately what it was that they were supposed to measure. So you were looking, we need accurate measure, and in order to do that, we have to recalibrate. Now, of course, what used to happen and often happen is you would drop stuff. And, uh, you know, so, so in, in, in instrument terms, it would get a knock on the head. And uh, once it got a knock on the head, you realize we've got to recalibrate this thing because it will be, it will be out in its thinking. And, um, you know, I think, I think either... Institutionalised Christianity has already had a knock on the head, which I would say it probably has, and if it hasn't, we need to give it a knock on the head. And I think times like the Reformation, where Martin Luther giving it a knock on its head so that we could recalibrate and reevaluate evaluate how, how this thing should measure. Remember, you recalibrate measuring instruments. And if you don't recalibrate them, you measure wrong. So p- part of what we're trying to do here at Q is to recalibrate... Our measuring instrument how we measure ourselves how we measure the world how we measure the Bible how we measure truth how we measure God how we measure the correlation between the cosmos and the earth how do we look at all these things Uh, because if we don't recalibrate then we have a problem which I'll illustrate in a moment so um, what does what does it mean to recalculate that's when new or revised information becomes available, which affects the equation. So if we have an equation, but we then become aware of different information, new information, revised information, then you have to recalculate the equation, otherwise the equation that you have been working to will now be completely wrong because it is not now included the revised information or the new information. So so in the context of our spirituality, our Christianity, our relationship with the divine, our humanity, what we're trying to do as we rebuild is to recalibrate so that our measuring instruments retain their accuracy And also to recalculate as we receive new information, as we receive revised information about truth, about Scripture, about God, then we recalculate the equation. And there's nothing wrong with this. This happens in life all the time, but in church it tends to not be a very popular thing. We're usually a century behind where we should be. So the question would be, what might be the consequence of a failure to act on this, recalibrating, recalculating? Well, it's very simple, really, because um, if, if we take... I'll, yeah, I'll do it here. If we, if we take a line, so this is, our, this is our direction, and then here, our instrument, our measurement... Um, is that squeaky? If our, if our instrument here, our way of measurement, is just one degree off, that's not much. That's near enough true, it's near enough right. Our understanding of God, our understanding of the world, our understanding of ourself, our understanding of Scripture, that's as that's, that's the world would say near as damn it. The problem is, as you continue that line, watch what happens. Sorry about this. I'm deliberately pressing hard because it's fun. So now, we're no longer one degree out. We're a long, long way away from where we should be. The tendency then becomes what I said at the beginning. We want to defend this position, not acknowledge this position. So we don't restore this back to truth. What we do is we make this itself truth. And we make that our understanding, and we use all kinds of ways to say that, the Lord, this, and the Holy Spirit, that, and what have you, when actually, in essence, our understanding of the divine, our understanding of God, how we appreciate life, Scripture, everything, is beginning to move away. And unless we recalibrate, what happens is this gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it has no resemblance to what the reality of the truth was. Now, we could say we could say that this is the this line would be the trajectory of Jesus followers doing it how Jesus wanted it doing to develop what it was that Jesus had in mind, and you could take this as religion. That religion then has taken a hold of that and begun to move it. So um, I propose that that potentially. If we'd have followed this line, we wouldn't be doing this. Um, our, our interaction with the world, our, our constructs would be quite, would be quite different. Um, because what began to happen here, this, you know, there's something, something always affects the calibration of the world and will try to influence everything and that is power. And it's not very far in here Around about um one hundred fifty to two hundred AD. It's all going on now, all of a sudden and you think, where's all this come from? We've got we've got bishops over countries and When you see art and paintings of them, they've got miters on and robes. All the stuff that was connected to the very religious system that Jesus came to dismantle and say, this is all not necessary for you to be in right relationship with the Creator, with God. This is not part of the deal because once you get into this, you get into the deal of, and it's the story that we, we talked about last week and so on, the movie. You know, into this gets introduced the idea of separation. We're all separated from God. We're all depraved. And, uh, and then we need some magic to fix that. And, uh, and we need those who propagate the magic. So even when we get up here, you know, to, um, we get up here, into the let's say it was starting to change then but early 1500 and uh, yeah we're all required to come to church but the priest talking to us in latin none of us know latin we were never trained in latin but they can get away with stuff What does that mean? Oh, well, it means this. We have no idea whether it means this or doesn't mean this because he's the one who knows Latin and they're now keeping suppressed because we've moved away. Now, thankfully, one of the things dear old Martin Luther um, did was to say, let's get at least get Scripture, let's get these writings, these things that the priests are talking about, let's get it in the language of the people so that the people can have a little read for themselves and have a think for themselves, which is a new idea. You know, that's all been suppressed for, for more than a thousand years. We don't want them to have any ideas. We don't want them to do any thinking. They must not decide what their relationship with God is. We must tell them and they must be dependent upon us. Now, now of course, that was never the model that Jesus brought in. So Jesus at ground level is simply influencing people's lives with a wonderful truth of God as Father, which was heresy to a Jew, God as Father, and us as family, that we become the sons of God, like Jesus was the Son of God, and in that relationship with Father and Spirit, we enter into that relationship, and so there should have been a much more um, organic process Which that's why I say potentially we might not have been sat in here because even the fact that I'm here and you're there uh, was a very late idea about, you know, I'm the priest, you're the people. And that's why we had also elevated um, pulpits to make you know you are less than. And of course, as I preach to you from above, God is talking to you from above, and I put hell and damnation on you. And pressure and manipulation, but of course, God loves you, and you can come in, and He will. You can be saved. But so, do you see how the whole thing was was going? Because and all of that happens when you just you don't recalibrate. Now, there have been attempts throughout history. You know, um, 1517, Martin Luther was one. We had another one back here, about about 1,000 into the calendar, where there were attempts to recalibrate, and there have been voices that have attempted to do that. But the truth is, you, you can't... Recalibrating on the bigger scale um, is not really what is conducive to the personal relational scale because it's all so big. You know, Martin Luther's somebody back there and it's all a big thing. What's more important is in this group of us, do we have a spirit that's willing to be transformed because we want a metamorphosis. We We want a change. We want a transformation. And therefore, what we're willing to do is consistently have a recalibrate, have a recalibrate. When new information comes about atonement theories and whatever, about hell, about heaven, are we prepared to recalculate? Because as we continue to do this, what happens is the instrument, which is your mind and your heart stays accurate to truth and the instrument can be reliable and uh, I think what we teach people now is not I am reliable and therefore you're okay we're trying to teach you you're reliable and that's where you become okay because of the 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 mystery of Christ in you the hope of glory for you so so I hope that makes um makes sense so so I've said that to say why why we it's not popular Certainly not in when you come to um, um, to institutionalised thinking. It's not popular to recalibrate. And when you look throughout history in any discipline, whether it's medicine or engineering or um, you know philosophy or or, or religion, um, most innovators and create and, and, and thinkers have been ostracised by their peers. You know, no great medical um, shift in our history, our known history, even in the last 250 years, ever came in without the majority resisting, rejecting, and, um, uh, and criticizing the person who brought in the truth. Even we look now and think, well, it's obvious you keep, you know, an operating theater must be clean, because of infection, but the first idea somebody in what time introduced somebody the first time somebody introduced The idea of germs it was ridiculed Well, where are they? Well, you can't see them Really? Yeah, they're invisible, but very powerful They, they do their work, but no one sees them do their work, but all of these things that you see is a result of germs that you can't see, and and that that was like that was a radical idea which which was true, but because that's not what the big boffins believed at all, it's like oh, that's rubbish, that's absolutely nonsense. How we can't even see these things? Well, of course, as we improved in medical science and microscopes and all that stuff, we were able to evidence by sight those things. But you know, you'll all have, have seen on TV programs and movies. You know, the old days of the surgeon in his in his, his street clothes and his smock sawed off limbs at will you know you know blood on and then of course you bring the next you bring the next patient in never clean the instruments never clean the clothes and couldn't understand why we've got this high mortality rate so i use that as an illustration to say that in, in any sphere the temptation is what we are certain of and I'm going to deal with that in a minute. That which we are certain of is usually the barrier to innovation and progress and invention and development. So so this happens with us. So, so really what I'm saying is that that's what we're about as Q. That's what we're trying to do with you is to say... We've got to keep recalibrating and recalculating as we come to face these issues. And in that way, it allows us to, to at least try and keep somewhere on this line of authenticity to what I believe is the more beautiful gospel of Jesus. So, um, let me give, give an example from, I thought this was great, from William Paul Young. So I'd like to claim it, but he said it, but I think his wordings of it are good. Um, So here's why we need to recalibrate uh, uh, and why this is the consequence of a failure to act in the context of our thing, the gospel, the truth. If you believe that God the Father poured out his wrath on his Son to open up the possibility of eternal salvation and you believe that God is love, then you believe, one, that violence is the highest expression of love, Two, that retributive justice is the only way to rid oneself of anger. Three, that God does not and cannot forgive as an act of his own desire. And four, that Jesus may have been able to hang around with sinners, but God the Father can't. So if we don't recalibrate, these are the kind of consequences that we come to of what we even believe about God. And about life and about truth. So these things alone have created measurements that one could argue move further and further away from the truth of a more beautiful gospel. And this is our illustration in the line and in the angle. So um, one of my favorite verses, because it, it's kind of very applicable to me, in Genesis 12, chapter 1, is when, is when it's recorded that God has spoken to the patriarch Abraham. And of course, says to him, uh, uh, leave your country, your people, family, relatives, however you want to put that. Leave your country and then, and then people, family, relatives and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. Now, here's the problem with recalibration and recalculation. Abraham is raised in what in essence is a, it is a um, paganistic... Society in Ur of the cold East, in what is present day Iraq, and um, you know the influences on that. We, we've we've gone into the the various the various cultures that were dominant around that time. The you know Mesopotamian, Arcadian, Sumerian thought that all had affected how spirituality and God, the gods as it was then. Uh, were viewed, and of course your basic premise was the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, you'll be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad. And as I've said to you many times, if that's not corrected, that brings us to the uh, interpretation of the crosses, the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, you'll be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad, which is a well-screwed-up version of what God intended for his relationship with humanity. So Abraham's in this Culture, and of course, just like all of us, he has the influences. Remember, we said from, from uh, Paul's writing in Romans 12 um, that, that don't be conformed to the pattern of the, a- the, the aeons, the ages, the, the thing in which you live. Same thing for Abraham, <clears throat> going all the way back there. So, we've got with Abraham, you know, if you think of the wider influences, country, country. And hopefully that's not music, but who knows, maybe it was. Maybe that's the first thing you have to leave. Uh, People, and I'll just put FH for Father's House. The the thing that struck me about this, I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating because I want it uh, logged into you, is that each one of these is a sphere of influence. Country, people, again, people can be family relatives, and father's household. Now, if we if we just go leave the literality of that a little bit, what we've got is three spheres of influence and each sphere of influence becomes closer in its in its application to the person. So like with all of us there are kind of things that we see and affect us but the kind of out here. And then there are other things that are kind of that the phrase we use is that's a little closer to home. Right that the phrase we use that's a little closer to home. What do we mean? Ooh, that's now requiring something of me, expecting something of me, challenging something in me that's getting that's getting a little too near to to the very essence of my control over who I am and so then it comes down to the nearest influence, the closest one which 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 this terms as father's house because. In the context of the Aeon, the age, the culture, that was your closest influence. You, you didn't, you know, get to 18 and scoot off to university. Uh, there was none of that going on. You know, basically, you were a family unit for life. So, you know, what happened is, you know, the kids came in this end and, and the older ones fell off that end. And that's kind of, that's kind of how, it, that's how it worked. Uh, probably quite sweet, because you know the kids learned everything from here flowing back, and then they brought life into all this going forward. And, and in essence, everybody looked after everybody, which, you know, in many ways, is, is a wonderful a wonderful model of, 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 of good culture, which, of course, is fine if the ideas and the ideals within that culture um, are conducive to a loving, open, engaging, relational perspective on life and the world which invariably many times it it was not that so what i'm trying to drive to you is that in recalibrating and recalculating is that for us as, as a church and for us as individuals there are all these different levels of influence i i think i think we are somewhere in here in our journey that um we we are addressing issues which um are not popular and uh, if you're looking for the best way to market yourself to a religious community are terrible ideas because it doesn't it doesn't tick the boxes of stuff that maybe out here was okay and here may be okay but as as the influence draws in then then you know we 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 have the problem this this is the ancient world version of recalibration. Abraham, you've got to recalibrate. All that stuff you think you know about God, you think you know about life, you think you know about how things work, you think you know about the world, Abraham, you've got to recalibrate. And in order to do that, we've got to we've got to leave this influence, this influence and this influence until basically we come back to some sense of purity of saying, what if I didn't know what I knew? What if I have no preconceived idea about myself and the divine and I started from there? If I now started to ask questions of life and the universe and the world and myself and my thoughts, what would be my conclusions if I got back there? Dare I actually even go there? Or would I be afraid of my own vulnerability because I am so gripped by certainty that outside of certainty I can have no security? So these things, Father's house gives me security and certainty. People gives me security, gives me certainty. Country gives me security, gives me certainty. Not only that, but I have three layers of security and certainty. I am safe. But safe from what? Safe to just do what you do and die. Is that safety? See, for me, the whole issue of the the literate message of scripture is setting people free releasing the captives remember we said about David when 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 David came to offer himself to fight the giant in the story of David and Goliath and King Saul and Saul said who are you and he said I used to keep sheep well it just come from keeping the sheep, but in David said that was the last time he was ever going to keep any sheep, because his life was changing. Why? Because, because the influence of country people's father's house, he was prepared to leave and be in that vulnerable place so that, so that there could be a transformation, a metamorphosis, from the renewing of the mind. Because you see, you can't carry the mindset of country people's father's house. if you're going to have a renewing of the mind, Do you get that. A renewing of the mind means you can't take all that junk. And remember, junk is not junk because it had no value. Junk is junk because it had value, but you still have it. Right? In essence, junk is not really rubbish. It's only rubbish in the sense of it's clogging up your loft and your wardrobe and your cupboard and your house and your... But what it... What, what it is, it, it's the stuff it's the stuff that meant something that now has become the junk that we try to take with us that all it does is becomes an accumulated burden. So that's why again, you know, coming to a literate reading of scripture, forget the things which are behind, right? forget the things which are behind, and press on towards the mark. In other words, there has to be a renewal of the mind that says, I am not relying on that, I am prepared to understand what is going on so that I can recalibrate and recalculate, and then there will be a transformation. So, that's recalibration. Uh, and this process would allow Abraham to see and experience what he would not have seen and experienced had he not engaged in the process fully. Because he said, go to a land that I will show you. Do you realize that for Abraham, he would not see and experience what he had been told he could see and experience unless he engaged in the process of recalibration. If you don't deal with this, you're not going to that. you see that? Okay. So I must say it again because it's a good statement the, this process would allow Abraham to experience what he would not have seen and it, uh, sorry would allow Abraham to see and experience what he would not have seen and experienced had he not engaged with this process fully but it's scary engaging with the process but within this process something is going to occur with which most of us are not truly comfortable and this is at least where I want to get us to tonight. So, um, let me write some words, and you can tell me. Okay, so fear. Oops, uh, fear. <laughs> What's the opposite of fear? okay so the opposite of fear is love so we would think that the opposite of fear is I wrote something in some way and I can't find it now there we would think potentially well let, let's let's do two words let's put this one up here so let's write the word faith what's the opposite of faith so a lot of people would think the opposite of faith is fear but that's wrong because the bible says the opposite of faith is sight we live by faith not by sight it's sight what we see with our natural eye and how we embrace that that causes us that 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 is the antidote to fear so the opposite to fear is sight when i stop being governed opposite to faith is sight so, when I stop being governed just by what I see in the natural world, that is when faith finds its power. So, the opposite to fear is not faith, because I used to be taught that. You say, oh, well, you know, if you want to deal with fear, you've got to have faith. That's wrong. The opposite to fear is love. Because John says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. So, Those are things we've looked at before, but I want to introduce another word to you, which which is where I wanted to lead this tonight, and we'll say a little bit about it before we we jump out of this. Okay, I'll do this in red, because this is, okay. So, question. What's the opposite to certainty? The natural answer would be uncertainty, uncertainty, but that would be wrong. The opposite to certainty is paradox, very important. Opposite to faith is sight. Opposite to fear is love. Opposite to certainty is not uncertainty. The opposite to certainty is paradox. See, uncertainty is simply being certain about that of which we are uncertain. Do you get that? Uncertainty is being certain about that of which we are uncertain. So it's another absolute that I was certain about the things about which I was certain, and in uncertainty, I am certain about the things about which I am uncertain. It's the same thing. Paradox is different. Paradox comes from two two, uh, Latin words. I mean, it comes out of the Greek, but in, in the Latin where we get our word from. It comes from the word para, which means distinct from, and doxa, which means opinion. So it's something that is distinct from opinion. So whatever paradox is, it is not defined and driven by my opinion. Now we're going to go a little deeper into this. Paradox is a statement or proposition which despite sound reasoning from acceptable premises leads to a conclusion that seems logically unacceptable or self-contradictory. A paradox appears to be logically unacceptable and self-contradictory. Which is what makes it so very, very interesting. And you can see why that would be the opposite to certainty paradox is a strange thing by nature because it holds within its territory reason and contradiction if if paradox had legs if paradox had legs it would have one foot in reason And it would have the other foot in mystery. One foot in reason. One foot in mystery. So even within its own self, there is, there is a conflict of two things. Reason and mystery. That it's reasonable to accept that there is mystery. And to know that there is mystery in reason says that you cannot live in the realm of certainty if you're going to live in the realm of faith and love you will also live in the realm of paradox paradox says why should God love me what is it about me that God should love on my worst day it's a paradox that God should love me the same as he loves me on my best day When my best day is not that much better than my worst day But at least there is some distinction It is a paradox It is a paradox when Paul writes While we were yet sinners Christ died for us He loved us while we were not attentive to him Is a paradox Because it, it has some reason in it We can say the reason is love But it has mystery to it Because why would love do that it's all a little mysterious because we struggle with those things in our natural understanding. So, so paradox has one foot in mystery and the other in reality while claiming the two are neither mutually exclusive or incompatible. So it's not, it doesn't have to have reason and it doesn't just have to have mystery. The two are compatible. Now that's where we struggle because when reason and mystery are compatible together the one thing it does not give you is certainty what it gives you in there is a realm that has to be experienced through love and lived in by faith because some of it doesn't make sense what I love about the universe and about science is that just when we think We've got to the bottom of things, or the height of things, we find it goes a little higher, goes a little deeper. Just when we think we've got a handle on this, it goes a little wider. And we find that within it all is a mystery. I, I love the whole, um, the whole thing about subatomic particles is fascinating. I mean, for some of you, you know, probably know it, not interested, and for some of you, it's, it might be just mind-blowing. But the fact that we now understand that these things called quarks exist, now just like germs, you can't see a quark, but we know a quark exists because we know what a quark does and when we examine it, we know that there are different kind of quarks that do different kind of things. It's all very strange. It's the, 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 the subatomic scientists have reason to it. All I can see is mystery. And I think they accept the mystery. So they made this amazing discovery that, that one of these things can move in one end of the country and it will move another one at the other end of the country that is connected to it, but they are not together. I know, that's what I think, Angela. Makes me look like that as well. I think, what the... F-? And yet, this is the wonder, the mystery, that there is reason and mystery mixed together. Now, to me, all this does is when, when, the, when the, the guy wrote the psalm, you know, 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and and, 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 and um, you know, the, the, the earth displays his, his, his magnificence, is wonder. He, he was catching something that in this there is, you can't just go on reason, you have to also accept mystery. So one of the things of our recalibrating our understanding of God is that we have to accept that within there is mystery. Within there is a depth and an expanse that we, as yet, even ourselves, do not understand. But what tends to happen is that we want to exchange one level of certainty, which is institutionalised religion thinking, for another level of certainty. So now we're free from that, but we're going to make ourselves certain about this. So all we do is we reproduce what we came from. We reproduce because we don't leave the space. You know, I think maybe, maybe in the Gospels when Jesus was talking, he was driving at some of that when he said, you know, there is a broad way, there's a narrow way that leads to life. Or in other words, you go from narrow to wide, but there's a broad way that leads to destruction. That actually, this is an expansive thing, not a contracting thing, but unfortunately we've made it a contracting thing. I've got a few more things to say, so, so I won't get down that, that avenue. Um, too much. So I propose that any attempt to understand spirituality and humanity without paradox, this conflict of, I don't quite get that, and kind of reason it, but there's something mysterious in there. When we get all of that out of it, we have missed the point because we have, we have not understood how to get free from the certainty that binds us. So... Um, The word mystery is used 19 times in the New Testament. Uh, In many ways, I'm not going to look into them tonight because I I don't want to take the time to do that. And I think in the light of that, there's another thing Chris and I were talking the other day, that because of the adulteration to our understanding of of the words flesh and spirit, um, you know, when when we've heard the word flesh, we think uh, depraved, sinful wicked nature and uh, the new international version of the bible did a great disservice when it translated the greek word sarx as sinful nature that was well it was naughty actually (laughs) he actually was naughty because what they've done is said we are going to interpret what flesh means to you flesh is sinful nature so once we hear that we believe that my existence is sinful in its nature right? there's the separation and they shouldn't have done it it was naughty and I I very much disagree with that being translated that way but because of our adulteration of understanding that we think spirit, God flesh, humanity spirit, God, pure flesh, humanity depraved, sinful there's that separation again um, we find it difficult, if not impossible to, to, to think of those things, flesh and spirit, outside of a Greek dualistic idea um, you know of the carnal and the spiritual that is separated god 's there and i 'm here, and he 's perfect and i 'm not, and he 's holy, and I will never be and, and so we have this 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 picture of separation. Um, that is not helpful helpful for, for a lot of us when we hear the word flesh and we hear the word spirit. So our mind immediately goes to that consequence. I think it's better, and we'll do some more conversation about this at another point, if we think more in terms of humanity and divinity. That the great question, and here's where the paradox also comes in, is the question of how humanity and divinity interact together. It's not by chance that, that the story that, that, that the Bible works to and is centred on and that has had such an impact on our world is the story of someone who claimed to be God incarnate, God made flesh, fully God, fully man, human and yet divine. And yet, for me, what that summarises is, that's actually the point of the question. It's not about flesh, you wicked, spirit, God, holy. You've got to leave behind your humanity and you've got to become this spirit thing. What humanity and divinity does, it wrestles with the interaction of the two. It wrestles with the God-made man in his image and in his likeness and breathed into them the same spirit that was breathed into Jesus when he came out of the womb of Mary and took his first breath is the same breath that the story of the Bible whether Adam and Eve were literal first man and woman is not the point the implication of it is that they were made in his likeness and image the breath comes in so they have the same spirit in them that God has in him the same essence of who God is is the same essence that comes into them and our fight and our is being to resolve that paradox of our humanity and our divinity of his humanity and his divinity in Jesus all linked by this breath called spirit all linked together so that the same thing that flows in the relationship of father son spirit is the same thing that flows in our relationship with him through that same spirit through that same Breath, and that's why Paul's in the book of Colossians. He says, Here's the if I were to summarize the mystery, I would say it's this Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or, in other words, if I were to summarize the mystery, the mystery is that in your humanity, you have a connection with the divinity that makes the two of you actually inseparable in kind and nature because you have become one. And that's why the Bible talks about becoming one in Christ. She's one with what? One with whom? One with the Father. One with the Trinity. One with all that God is in his existence. Now, there's a paradox for you. I'd like to do more talk at some point about that humanity and divinity question. So, here's a bit of amusement, and then I'll tell you the last thing. So, so uh, a guy called... There's there's this book called Titus in the New Testament, and um, in this book written to Titus, he's talking about similar things to what Paul was referring to where we started in Romans 12 about you know the the influences they don't be conformed to stuff and he, he's basically talking about how a bunch of religious jews have tried to influence what is the emerging message of jesus and bring it back under rules and laws and regulations and separation and and all this kind of stuff and and he, he makes a statement he says um he, he says to them in verse 12 of titus chapter 1 even one of their own prophets that's where they are even one of their own prophets says cretans are always liars evil brutes and lazy gluttons so that's interesting because so if you quote if you quote a prophet a, phil, a philosopher from what would be termed a pagan nation who spoke f- for about four BC or somewhere around there. No, no, earlier than that, 6th century BC. Is that still scripture? If you write it in scripture, is it, is it inerrant? So if you quote that he said Cretans are all liars, does that mean that that's an inerrant statement that all Cretans are liars? Not Cretins, Cretans, people from Crete, okay? But actually that comes from a statement made by, I'll write his name on here, then next pub quiz you're in. You've got it, his name is Epimenides. Epim, Epimenides. Epimenides, who was around in the sixth century BC. And uh, he's the guy who said that all Cretans are liars. However, in philosophy, there is a concept that is called the liar paradox. Because it comes from Epimenides. Because Epimenides said all Cretans are liars. But Epimenides was a Cretan. So was he lying? And if he was, what he said wasn't true. It's quite interesting, because in the philosophy of it, it is that if Epimenides' Epimenides' statement is taken to imply that all statements made by Cretans are false, because all Cretans are liars, then since Epimenides was a Cretan, his statement is false. I.e. not all Cretans are liars, because if he's a Cretan and he said all Cretans are liars and that's false, because he would be lying then all Cretans are not liars. Do you get it? It's fascinating, isn't it? The paradox is interesting because it says, the sent- if this sentence is false, if the sentence is true then it is false and if it's false then it's true. Because it's a paradox, right? So, so the Cretans saying all Cretans are liars means all Cretans are not liars. But then are all Cretans liars because there was a Cretan, was he making a pure statement? It's a paradox. That's what I'm trying to say. A paradox, the only thing you can do with a paradox is let it be a paradox. You can't solve a paradox. Now, just from another perspective, Matthew, Matthew wrote the gospel, does the same thing in his gospel in Matthew 17, um, when he talks about, you know, if, if, if you find your brother in a sin, go to him, just the two of you, say to him what the problem is, and if he won't listen to you, you know, take someone with you, and if you won't listen to them, you know, um, take it to the, the, the leaders, and if you won't listen to them, take it to the church. And then he said, if we won't listen to any of them, then treat this person like you would a tax collector or a sinner now Matthew was a tax collector see Matthew was a tax collector so we're all thinking yeah treat him like a tax collector the question would be how had Matthew been treated as a tax collector kindness. the truth is with love and kindness and generosity of spirit and he had been brought into and included in Jesus tribe of disciples But he's saying, if somebody won't agree, treat them like like you were a tax collector. See, there's a paradox because in that culture, tax collectors were hated and therefore should be treated with hatred and disenfranchised. But Matthew's saying, treat them like like a tax collector, because he's a tax collector, he's saying the paradox is that as we outwork that in a new understanding, it gives us a completely different result because now we don't have retributive justice, we have restorative justice. Now, I know it's a bit complicated for some of you, but it'll sink in. So let me let me bring this to um, to some kind of a close. So are we recalibrating... And recalculating, I guess, would be the question. If that's true, then we must not do it by replacing certainty with certainty or certainty with uncertainty, because that in itself is a kind of certainty, but by allowing paradox to exist comfortably wherever certainty is not appropriate. That means we don't have to have all the answers. The starting point for all our recalibration and recalculation should take its lead from the ancient wisdom of Scripture about beginnings. See, this is where I see wisdom, reading Scripture literally. Genesis 1 gives you a clue about taking your lead. Do it from the beginning. In the beginning, it says, In the beginning, God... So in our recalibration and recalculation, the first of all questions and probably the greatest of all paradoxes is the question about God. Everything we do has to come back to recalibrate itself. Who do we think God is? What do we think God is? How do we think God is? Has to keep coming back to recalibrate. So that then our experience is not dictating who God is but we come back to recalibrate with that question, the beginning. The second thing he says created, in the beginning God created. So the second thing in recalibrating would be what does that mean? What and by whom for what? Therefore, what is the relationship between creator and created, between created and created? How does all this work? So we're recalibrating by always going back to say, in the beginning, it has to be God. What do we know? What do we think we know? What can we understand about the nature, the type, the way that God is, how God shows himself, what God does, the whole things of, is he? should he be perceived as human should he be perceived as never human should he be perceived as spirit that floats or something that's real or is he in the universe and all these questions and then the whole thing about creation and what does that mean then what is it that is created from this and how do we interact and relate with that and then of course he said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that third recalibration for me of beginnings is what is the role of cosmos and cosmology What's the thinking in all that? How do we reconcile ourselves to greater thought beyond what we think is sound reasoning? In how the universe works, how it holds together, how God is in all things and all things are made for him and he created and it hangs together and holds together and somehow in that equation we have a place where we exist and where we find that good, perfect, acceptable will that we talked about right at the beginning. Because I believe if we stay in that space as the root of our reasoning that I propose we won't go far wrong. But that's the very space that very often people don't want to recalibrate to. Because what if I see God now different to how I saw God then? Then. See, that becomes the thing. What about the paradox of... of, of, of what about this? So just this last, last little thought. We talked about this yesterday. The story of, of the gospel tells us Jesus heals lepers. So to a leper, the gospel was Jesus heals lepers. If you're not a leper you won't be healed by this Jesus because this Jesus heals lepers. So lepers are in, non-lepers are out. That's the gospel. If you're a tax collector like Zacchaeus, you say, no, Jesus saves tax collectors because he accepts tax collectors and he goes to the house of tax collectors. So if you're a tax collector, Jesus came for you. So tax collectors are in, Non-tax collectors are out. If you're a fisherman, you say, Jesus came for fishermen. And I'm a fisherman. And I know that he understands and reaches out to fishermen. And if you're a fisherman, you can have what I had. Fishermen are in. Non-fishermen are out. Do you see how in each aspect of that, there is a truth to the gospel that when we take it to another arena and say, now here is the first nation Native American who kills the buffalo for the tribe and give thanks to the buffalo for giving its life that the tribe may live... And that they worship because the buffalo gave its life and has now become the life that will feed them. And they honour the buffalo who was given by the great spirit. Now you say, well, how does that work? Well, what else did they know? But now they see that the great spirit is the one who provides to buffalo hunters. And when we hunt the buffalo... And we kill the buffalo and the buffalo provides for our family. We have met that which the great spirit has given to us. Do you see how it's so easy for us in our definition of God to become narrowed and not understand the paradoxes that to the leper he's the saviour of the leper. To the tax collector he's the saviour of the tax collector and they have the tax collector's gospel. To the fisherman is the saviour of the fisherman. To the woman is the saviour of the woman. To the Indian out on the plains is the saviour of the Indian out on the plains. This is the paradox of the wonder of this thing. Did you say which one of those is true? Well, the truth is, the mystery is that they're all true in different ways because their expression comes right back to in the beginning, God. Right, I'll shut up. I think we've said enough to to fill your brains with enough to have a think about. So I hope that's been uh, a little helpful and also stimulate us on a little bit to uh, what might be you know, some of the next parts of our journey. And what I do want you to get in your head and think about Let your own man wrestle with it. The opposite to certainty is not certainty. The opposite to certainty is paradox with its feet in reason and mystery. All right, we're done. We love you, we bless you. And uh, we'll see you on Sunday.
0: Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast.